Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. I am Van Jones. Now, look, on this show, I am committed to hearing from conservatives and trying to figure out ways we can find common ground. But I'm also committed to finding common ground with folks who are on my side of the aisle because we don't see eye to eye over here all the time either. And there are a lot of questions I have for progressives, like how do we avoid alienating so many people? How do we make our messaging more clear and more resonant? When should we be willing to compromise with folks on the other side so that we can get some results for people that we care about? And you know, how are we measuring success? What's the end game? I got a lot of questions for progressives as well. And that's why this week I wanted to sit down and talk to Sean King. Now, Sean King is a progressive activist. He's a writer. He has spent years fighting for civil rights and racial justice, and he has had tremendous impact. I mean, he's just a real pioneer when it comes to using social media and video footage to bring instances of police violence and racial injustice to the fore. And he's really played a huge role in waking people up to what's happening and getting the mainstream media to cover some of this stuff as well. A lot of people who have heard of Sean King, you know, you tend to think of him in a certain way, the racial activist online. A lot of people don't know that he grew up in a red state, rural Kentucky. Uh, He's got a lot of people in his own family who aren't progressive or liberal at all. And he's got a, a unique personal backstory that I want you to be more aware of. My mother and all of her brothers and sisters either worked in factories or coal mines. And they were lifelong Democrats. And my my grandmother was a diehard Democrat. And we started seeing one by one my white uncles and cousins feeling like they had been abandoned by the Democratic Party, like they felt abandoned long before Trump. And I tried to explain this the day after Trump was elected to say, like, hey, in my family, Trump winning wasn't this huge surprise because... We started seeing in the late 80s and early 90s all through that time that they just felt like, hey, do any of these people actually care about us? In this episode, Sean and I dive into his thoughts on police reform, uh, where he thinks the police could do a better job and where he thinks the police reform movement can do a better job. Uh, We also get some insight, and I was really excited about this, into how he gets some of the stuff done on the ground And we even talk about a time that he wound up working with Ted Cruz to get stuff done. So I think this conversation is going to be very instructive, you know, if you're trying to understand how uh, leaders on the left are thinking through some of these challenges and how they make decisions and the calculations behind the doors that are closed and how often bridge building is happening left to right, even on issues as controversial as criminal justice. So whether you're a progressive or a conservative, I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. So stay tuned and hear from Sean King right after this break. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? 
If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Well, look, I'm just really glad we got a chance to talk. And I know, let, let me just say, as excited as I am to talk with you, we haven't been able to talk because you've had some really tough things happen on the family side. I know your daughter is recovering from getting hit by a car. You've had some security threats to you and to your family. So before we talk about issues and politics, you know, just how are you doing? How's the family? How are you holding up? Yeah, no, thank you for acknowledging that. See, in some ways, I feel like my life is always like this. <laughs> And so, but to hear you uh, list it out, you know, our our daughter, who's a student at NYU, was in a horrible accident. She was just crossing a street and got hit by an Uber that was speeding through, had a traumatic brain injury, and but has recovered well. And so we're glad. I mean, it could have been deadly. Uh, my family had a lot of threats and even had started having people show up at our home, which was, of all the things that I've had happen over the years, that was really the first time we started to get people physically at our house and particularly made my wife and kids feel very unsafe. So we had to move and uh, that kind of caused its own trauma because everybody was really happy where we were. You know, all of those things definitely took an emotional toll on me this year. But I'm 42 and I'm a more mature human being than I was at 32 or 22. So I've tried this year to take all these things in stride to make sure that I'm mainly present for my family in ways that they need, in ways that I need. 10 years ago at 32, or I probably would have just thought I needed to power through it and work through it all. And what I've tried to do over these past few months is just be emotionally present, physically present for my family to kind of help guide us through this. And I don't, I don't regret that even a little bit, man. Well, you know, that wisdom is something that is, you know, hard won and much needed. And I just, you know, I feel for you. I think a lot of times, you know, folks in public life, people think that we're made out of titanium steel. 
and they have no idea, you know, that we're human beings. I mean, we're real people. You know, we got to go to the store and buy toilet paper and just do all the stuff that everybody else does on top of, you know, trying to be heard and trying to make a difference. You know, before we get into some of the issues and, and some of the stuff that I want to talk with you about, I would like for people who may have heard of you but don't know the kind of superhero origin story uh, just to at least you know, hear from you, you know, who are you and, and where did you come from? Why do you do this stuff? Just give us that superhero origin story really quickly and anything that might surprise people to know about you. Yeah, no, no, I'm glad to tell my story. and I, I don't see myself at all how most people see me. First and foremost, my wife and I, we're both country. We're from Kentucky. <laughs> we're from a small town in Kentucky. I was born in 1979 and I was the product of a interracial marriage at a time when, uh, that wasn't really even a thing, an interracial relationship, rather, that people really understood or talked about or had the language for. My mother, who I'm super close with, who's now in her early 70s, was a sweet country factory working white woman, a diehard Democrat who cared a lot about labor and politics. She was really caring. She loved me through a lot of hard times. But my mother also kind of failed and struggled in one respect. And I can talk about it because my mother and I really opened up and talked about it. But she didn't really know how to teach me about race. And I don't know that particularly, you know, so I came of age in the 80s. I don't know that most white mothers raising a multiracial child, particularly in small town Kentucky, I don't know, there was no internet. There were no support groups or Facebook groups. You couldn't Google it. So like a lot of mixed race children in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of things I didn't learn about race, racism, my role in the world. It was complex for me growing up in this town that had a horrible history of racism that nobody really prepared me for. And so when I got into high school, it was like a racial powder keg. And it ultimately boiled over to me being brutally assaulted. I was a sophomore in high school. It was bad enough to where I missed the next two years of high school recovering from the injuries. I had multiple spinal surgeries, fractures to my face and ribs. Who attacked you and why? This was a group of racist white students at our high school who had been bullying me for a year and a half prior to that. And had that not happened, man, I don't think we would be on this call right now. I cared about race and racism. I cared about injustice in the way that a 15-year-old boy in rural Kentucky could in 1995. Again, this is before TikTok, before social media, but having experienced such a brutal injustice myself, it branded this notion of experiencing injustice in a deep way and caused me to have a sensitive heart to anybody who experienced harm or wrong or trauma. You know, I've known you for a long time, and I I didn't actually know that about you. And so I think probably a lot of people wouldn't know. It, it it does make sense. You know, I grew up on the edge of a small town in rural West Tennessee. And I do think that, you know, those of us who come from the heartland of the country and who also grew up in a context where racism was personal, it was intimate, it was a daily experience, and also it was complicated because— you know, that same teacher who said that thing that was completely out of pocket or wrong may also have been your best English teacher, you know? And so it's a much more complex thing as opposed to the way I think people deal with it now. And even for me, Van, uh, I talked about this. I did this interview the day after Trump was elected. 
my mother and all of her brothers and sisters either worked in factories or coal mines, and they were lifelong Democrats. And my, my grandmother was a diehard Democrat. And we started seeing one by one my white uncles and cousins feeling like they had been abandoned by the Democratic Party, like they felt abandoned long before Trump. And I tried to explain this the day after Trump was elected to say, like, hey, in my family, Trump winning wasn't this huge surprise because we started seeing in the late 80s and early 90s all through that time that they just felt like, hey, do any of these people actually care about us? And so coming where I come from, it's just allowed me to understand that the stories of who we are and how we got where we are right now in 2022, it's way more complex than people want to give you credit for. Well, I mean, that's part of why I wanted to do this uh, Uncommon Ground podcast is because, you know, when we get away from the talking points and the caricatures and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, most of us who are trying to make the country better, trying to help our communities, you know, we're way more, way more complicated. I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear Sean King, who is always portrayed as like the most militant black person in digital media, speaking with such empathy for Trump voters and pointing out that he's got some Trump voters in his family that frustrated with them, but understands them, loves them, and sees beyond some of these, you know, very easy, simplistic, reductionistic assumptions we make about each other. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, you know, just to, to zero in on, on one of many possible topics is just the idea of where we are. You know, I think about you, I think about the role that you played in using digital media uh, to lift up injustice. You know, when we got to 2020, it was really kind of the culmination of a lot of work that you had done. George Floyd, that would have shocked anybody, but it was it was almost a last straw kind of a moment. And yet here we are almost two years later, there's been a real backlash against slogans like defund the police in both political parties. We have not gotten federal legislation passed for police reform. And you even have you know Joe Biden coming out saying fund the police. And so I just want to talk with you about where are we and do you feel that this movement, at least for police reform, was it too militant? Was it not militant enough? Was slogans too sharp, not sharp enough? Let's just talk a little bit about, you know, you have this empathy for people on the right and white folks. You also have a deep, deep empathy for African-Americans and people who've been brutalized. I just want to take a step back. Where are we and, and, and how did things go from where they were in 2020 to where they are in 2022? I loved and still do love the concept of defunding the police. And, and I'll tell you why. People can fuss about whether or not the phrase was right, but it was really moving the conversation to a budget conversation to say, hey, we not only want to see symbolic change, we actually want to see deep systemic change. And I thought this notion of, hey, when we look at how we approach public safety in America, police are disproportionately funded in comparison to so many other verticals. And we actually need to move money from policing and put money into housing, education, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, violence interrupters. I believe that. Your budget shows your priorities and you live those priorities out based on what you fund and don't fund. But what I have seen is any time you have some type of deep systemic change or even hint of deep systemic change in America, there is a backlash. 
after the Civil War and then the Emancipation Proclamation, 13th and 14th Amendments, then the period of lynching began. I think if you if you open up the jar, it says defund the police, if you open up the jar and look at the actual contents of the jar, I think most people um, who are fair-minded wouldn't find much to object to because even the police don't want to have to go out there and be uh, uh, you know, homeless mental health counselors. Or home- yes and no on that. And here's the yes and no. Police unions across the country have fought tooth and nail for more and more work and more and more responsibilities. And they've been so effective that now you go to most cities and police are even responding to what would typically go to animal control. So you have police getting cats out of trees, police going into homes where there's a mental health crisis. And you're right. Study after study, poll after poll goes when you ask people, hey, would you rather have a team of qualified mental health experts show up at a home when someone calls 911? Well, some polls have that at 80 percent approval, like deep bipartisan approval. So that policy is now starting to work in Denver and other cities in Colorado Springs. It's starting to happen in other places that are sending mental health crisis teams, even in Manhattan. They're trying that out in certain targeted neighborhoods. I guess that's why I want to, want to have the conversation, though, because what I would say about that slogan in particular is that immediately it felt like a bridge too far to me. We had just gotten 20 million white folks, <laughs> according to the polls, who say in January might have said that anti-black racism didn't even exist and the cops were fine to jump the fence and literally change their mind 180 and say, no, anti-black racism is real. And we immediately upped the stakes months before a national election. I mean, I just, what if the slogan had been demilitarize the police? I mean, were there other slogans available that might have consolidated what we had rather than immediately raising the bar? I think to me, those are kind of tactical questions that every movement has to wrestle with. You know, when do you move from freedom now to black power to burn, baby, burn? You know, these slogans wind up doing a lot of work in our movements. I just wonder, is it possible to say that was probably an unforced error, given the fact that the Republicans have used that slogan massively more against us than the Democrats, for instance, have been able to use it for us? Well, what we see is that Republicans are gifted and skilled at grabbing whatever you're fighting for and hitting you over the head with it. And so when you say, well, hey, man, how wrongheaded was the phrase defund the police? But then you start to see, well, also now they have tried to completely deconstruct Dr. Ibram Kendi's notion of anti-racism. So what we find is whatever definition we come up with, if it's anti-racism, if it's critical race theory, if it's defunding the police, that it's hard to come up with any type of nomenclature that they don't then criticize and say, look, this is tearing us apart at the seams. And so I think Mm -hmm. at the root is what we're dealing with is the white fear of people coming for the way America always has been and people wanting to envision and fight for kind of a new definition of this country And so all of a sudden, yes, they weaponize defund the police, but man, they're weaponizing any phrase we come up with. You know, I I think that that really points to, I think, a challenge that is there, which is that I think it's easy to just get frustrated. You know, my experience on the criminal justice reform 
side of all these conversations was that we were able to find some paths forward that required some, just some real thoughtfulness about, okay, how can we get, what about the conservative cause could actually be brought over to the side of justice reform? And we, we focused in, okay, well, they say they don't like big, wasteful bureaucracies. Well, there's nothing more wasteful and bureaucratic than a prison. They say that they're libertarians. They believe in individual dignity and rights. Well, you know, prisons are the opposite of that. Um, many of them are religious conservatives that believe in, you know, Jesus and fallen sinners and redemption and grace. There's none of that available in our justice system. So is there some way for us to form a temporary right-left alliance to get something done? The Dream Corps, my organization, we were able to get 22 bipartisan criminal justice bills done. We got, you know, the first step back done, 20,000 people out of federal prisons. It gave me a, at least a sense that there are times and places and manners where some strategery, <laughs> as George W. Bush used to say, could pay off. Part of the challenge is that in a lot of ways, the central nervous system of liberal and progressive politics really are New York and California, where you actually have the freedom in that place to say, say on the streets of Los Angeles, hey, we want to defund the police. Well, in the Los Angeles activist community, it wasn't necessarily a bridge too far. That's very true. Then when you take a step back to say, well, what about the other 48 states? It becomes a struggle when a phrase or a concept or an idea that may have been brewing for years in those two places, when you then try to overlay it, it might not nail it in Charlotte or Atlanta. And so I've learned a lot from you and you've, you've been a role model for me in this idea. Sometimes we have to say, okay, but to get this thing passed, I'm going to have to approach this very differently because the ideas that I actually believe in, which may have emanated from New York or California, don't necessarily resonate or work and may harm us in so-called middle America or in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Kentucky, where I'm from. For instance, um, you and I were a part of a really beautiful coalition of Democrats and Republicans, deep, committed conservatives and liberals and progressives and everything in between trying to fight to save the life and ultimately free Julius Jones. Well, me and many others, like we had rules where we said, listen, while we're doing this, do not say anything ugly about the governor, who is a deep conservative. Do not say anything ugly about Donald Trump because we might need his help. And thankfully, everybody understood that, understood that a man's life was at stake and that no matter what our personal feelings were about Trump or the governor or others, it's like, no, 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 we have to approach this very differently. Um, th this will be the one opportunity I have to say something good about Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when we ran our campaign, so the Innocence Project, the National Office of Innocence Project called me, and this will be my illustration for how do we do this. The National Innocence Project called me when Rodney Reed was 22 days away from execution. I only knew a little bit about Rodney's case. I'd heard about it and they felt like they were hitting a wall and they were confident that with 22 days, it could march straight to an execution and that Rodney, Rodney would be killed. And we created a campaign and a project and a microsite, freerodneyreed.com, all around the idea that we need Republicans to see this case, to understand it, and to somehow feel like their constituents cared enough 
to speak out about it. And one of the first things that we did was we started to win over Republicans in the Texas legislature. And right away, we made a decision to say, you know what? I think they will be better being the face of this than me. That Ted Cruz may listen to them before he listens to me. And so I have to set my ego aside, set my my notion of wanting to be a face of this project aside and say, yeah, our goal here is not to be known. Our goal here is to stop this execution. And eventually the case was put in front of Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz in his office. he, He wrote a tweet that was like an earthquake for us, basically saying, I've looked at the facts of this case. And this man should not be executed. Ted Cruz tweeted this. Wow. And this was with maybe 10 days before Rodney's execution. And we felt right away when Ted tweeted that it would then give all Republicans in Texas cover if they wanted mm-hmm. to also join in. And it did. And the wow. Board of Pardons and Parole there voted 9-0 to stop the execution. The governor agreed with that. These are I mean, deep, diehard conservatives. That's amazing. I knew the outcome. I didn't know the background behind it. I mean, this is this is the type of stuff that people really don't understand. So I had a conversation like where we were trying. Ted Cruz was like the second person we were trying to get at this. At the time, Trump, I think, was at the early peak of his power in his presidency. We felt like, hey, if Trump says this, it's done. They won't execute mm-hmm. him if Trump speaks. And people ask me hard questions. They say, well, Sean, if Trump wanted to do a press conference about this, about Rodney Reed's case, saying, no, this should be stopped, would you appear with him if it meant stopping the execution of Rodney Reed? And I mean, that was hard for me. Trump never came out. But these are conversations. These are thoughts I know, Van, that you have had where I had to say, yes, I said, of course, yes. Am I going to go to campaign rallies? No, no, (laughs) no, no. But if he says this. Yes, I'll do it. Why? Because I literally have Rodney Reed's mother on the other line. How could I ever show my face to his mother, to his brother? These men and women who eventually told me, like, Sean, I love you, and and me tell them I love them. How could I show my face to them if Rodney was executed because I wasn't willing to, in some ways, shame myself by showing up at a press conference? Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, you can team up with friends in Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Where you can meet talking flowers. Life's full of surprises. And where piranha plants sing. And where Mario, Luigi, and Peach turn into elephants. Wowie, zowie! And where this announcer turns into a... Super tiny announcer! <laughs> That's not in the game. <clears throat> Sorry, got a little excited. Nintendo Switch, the home of Mario and Friends. Game rated E for everyone. Game and system sold separately. 
I think this is a extraordinary conversation because, again, we don't talk about this stuff in public. We just try to get the work done. And then, of course, you have to move on to the next case and the next case and the next case. And then what happens is I think mythologies get built up that the only way things you know happen is one side of the scissor, the militancy, the raising the, the issue, et cetera. And they don't understand that after you make the point, you still have to make the deal and that you've got to be masterful on both sides. And what I love about the story that you're telling is People say, you know, how could you, you know, with me, how could you have gone to the Oval Office and, and talked to Donald Trump and signed the legislation? You, you know, he handed you the pen and you said good things about it. I said, well, I could do that with very good conscience because, first of all, 99 other times I'm criticizing Trump. You know, it's not like I'm somebody who's on TV saying great stuff about, you know, Trump's foreign policy or something like that. But with Jared Kushner and with that uh, White House, you know, we had 99 problems. But in that moment, prisons were not one. They were willing to do something. They were willing to do something that the New York Times ultimately called the most substantial breakthrough on criminal justice in a generation. Not Fox News, New York Times. Now, what is my bad day on Twitter compared to that? You know, my worst day on Twitter is better than anybody's best day in prison. If I can stand there and, you know, take some heat, but 20,000 people come home, which is what happened. 20,000 people, mostly black folks, were able to come home. And now both political parties have to at least momentarily say they're for criminal justice reform. And we get 87 senators, would have been 88 if Lindsey Graham had gotten off the plane in time, to say they're for criminal justice reform in, in any level. That now protects our whole movement. Now, Cory Booker can raise his hand, as he did, and say he wants decriminalization of marijuana on the campaign trail running for president. And nobody criticized him because we had already gotten Trump and the Republicans on board with reform. So I think sometimes it's having this conversation where it's like, I'm just not that important. If, if I'm the pawn that has to get knocked over, so that we can save the queen or save the king, knock me over. You know what I mean? Like, I'll, I'll get back up tomorrow and do it again. There are two things that I think about that often have me stuck there. One, it's easy for people who aren't faced with this actual scenario to say they would never do it. But then faced with it, you then have to really search your soul and ask, well, what matters most to me? Is it my reputation? Is it my name? Is it being loved or popular? Or is it the result? And so so being in that position is what changed my mind. And then it colored how I, I saw what you what you were able to do. But there is the possibility. And I, I know you've asked yourself this question like, hey, could me helping save this one person's life? Could that then be weaponized to harm countless more people? Mm -hmm. And is that worth it? Yes. And that's a really hard question. And I think it depends on who you are. Somebody like myself, you know, look, I'm, I'm not the head of the NAACP. You know, I'm a pundit who does some work. I have enough standing in the world that it's not meaning less for me to take a, a position. But it's not, I'm not Obama. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think different people at different levels of influence can, you know, play this game somewhat differently. I don't think you want a Michelle Obama or Barack Obama, you know, holding hands with Donald Trump, skipping through the, the courtyard on almost any issue because that's too much. But these are the kinds of questions, I think, that we need to be able to talk more about. Look, in the time we've got left, what can we do, you know, moving forward? What can the people who are listening to this do? Uh, what are solutions that you see? Let's just talk a little bit about the future of police reform. Yeah, I mean, I would, if you had told anybody in 2020, that with all these people marching, even under a Democratic administration, you would get zero 
police reform, they would be shocked. Well, what, what can we do to, to get something across the finish line? Yeah, well, that's a hard conversation. And I, and I mean, I, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to hear even, you know, what I have to say. I, I've been a lifelong critic of Joe Biden. And now that we're 500 days into his administration, it doesn't shock me that he's done so little on policing mass incarceration and even just by executive order. Um, we created a website called BidenJusticeDemands.com where we wrote out with scholars and attorneys almost 100 different executive orders that Joe Biden could do without Congress, cases that we wanted him to take up for the DOJ to prosecute policies that he could enact. And Joe Biden's transition team held meetings with me and our organization, Grassroots Law, and we also introduced them to multiple family members who had been impacted by police violence. And then we were told to, hey, wait until the end of, don't judge us until the end of the first 100 days. It's now April. Mm. And these families now, almost a year and a half into Joe Biden's administration, feel like, hey, you find a way to fight for the things that you actually care about, but you've left us hanging. And it's an easy excuse to say, well, hey, it's hard to get anything passed in the Senate. I understand that I do. But even the things that they have the power to do, they're not doing. The truth is, on the federal level, these things are just not a priority for Joe Biden himself. They're not, he is not willing to risk political capital to do things on policing and mass incarceration. And I'm furious over it. And they basically gave the political wins time to turn. This is something they should have done two or three or four months into office. Now the time, the moment has changed. And now that the politics are different, I doubt they're going to do anything. Well, you know, I think it's an amazing moment. I think what you're saying is very powerful because what I've found is that you just don't know who's going to be your friend and who's going to be your opponent until you actually get out there and try to solve the problem. It's only when you try to save the person's life on death row that you figure out that, at least on this particular case, you might get more help from a Ted Cruz than from some liberal who might be focusing on another issue that year. And it's been really interesting having this conversation with you. I, I am hopeful that we can get something done on voting, something done on police reform, something done on you know, more infrastructure. But it's going to require some real rethinking. I think our tone sometimes has been very, very militant. <laughs> and sometimes we can back off on tone. But at the same time, I think as progressives, we haven't been bold enough in terms of being willing to reach out and expand the coalition to include some of your relatives who are being let down by everybody who might be white and conservative, to include some lawmakers who usually vote against us on some stuff, but might be willing to vote with us on other things. So I just appreciate getting a chance to talk with you, especially as much as you're going through on the national stage, as much as you're going through in your personal life and your family life for you to make time and have this quality and depth of a conversation with us on Uncommon Ground. Yeah. Well, brother, I enjoy speaking to you, man. Always in your corner. And thanks for leading and and thanks for always being uh, accessible and available to me and other leaders for advice and guidance and rooting for you in every way, man. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. 
I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk shop, honestly, with Sean King. You know, he is one of the most impactful people in the country. I think he's largely misunderstood, and he's under a lot of fire a lot of the time. But I hope what you saw was what I saw, which is somebody who takes this stuff very seriously. He lived through what could have been a viral video moment of uh, brutality and racism, and he's trying to do something about it. For people who question, you know, why should we even try to work across these different lines of race, of political party, ideology, or whatever. It's just all futile. It's all terrible. I just want to say, it's very easy to have that position until something's actually on the line, until the the stakes are high for you personally. The people who are in the room and you have to make a decision, are you going to go out there and tear the Republican governor a new one? Or are you going to maybe say it nice because somebody could die? Those decisions are actually pretty easy in real life. When you have a solution, suddenly you need friends. Somebody on death row doesn't want more enemies. Somebody who's in prison doesn't want more enemies. They want more friends. They want more cooperation. They want more people who can set that to one side and put them first. And I think the more you work on these issues, the more you do this stuff, even when you're as passionate as someone like Sean King, the more it turns out that finding that uncommon ground and getting something done is a much bigger reward than any of the posturing and any of the food fight stuff that we do. I feel that way. I know Sean King feels that way. I hope you feel that way. And I hope to see you on the next Uncommon Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges that will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. Thousands, not millions. $200,000. Because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The Goat, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th.